Welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the show that explores and celebrates rural life for today and tomorrow. This is Josh Stevens. Hope you've had a pleasant day. We just heard a tune called Soldier's Joy, performed by Howard Marshall and Vivian Williams on fiddles and Musial Wolf on the piano. This was filmed live at the Huckleberry Cafe in Boonville, Missouri at the 2009 National Old Time Fiddle Contest and shared on the internet by Phil Williams. The music playing in the background right now is a tune called Over the Waves, formed by Musial Wolf on the piano and Howard Marshall on fiddle. You can find links to the songs on our Facebook page. Today we're going to listen to Dr. Robert Lawrence, founder and retired director of the Center for a Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The Center for a Livable Future focuses on the impact of industrialized food animal production on public health and the environment. The health risk that these communities become susceptible to when these industrialized agriculture systems enter a community. But first, Margo's going to share agriculture in the news this week. And it's time for some agriculture in the news. I'm Margo McMillan. According to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, of the 164 licensed hospitals in Missouri, 45% are located in rural areas. Of those 72 hospitals, nearly half are critical access hospitals which have 25 beds or less and provide a limited scope of service. The Department of Health and Senior Services says that it's a challenge for rural communities in Missouri to establish and sustain a health care system which provides essential health services to their community. So it's no secret that health care for Missouri's rural poor is a low priority in our state. Because of the legislature's refusal to approve Medicaid expansion, hospitals have suffered when patients can't pay. In the KOPN listening area, many rural hospitals, including Boonville and Fulton, have been under extreme financial strain so that residents don't know if they'll get services close to home or not. When there's a closing, patients go to larger facilities, putting pressure on hospitals in Columbia or Jefferson City or other county seats nearby. According to the Missouri Foundation for Health, the answer is to expand Medicaid to lower-income families. 230,000 Missourians make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to afford health coverage on their own. Without health insurance, Missourians can't stay healthy. They can't go to work, and they can't support their families. Right now, in Missouri, parents in a family of four 
must earn less than $5,550 per year to qualify for health insurance through Medicaid, and there is no provision for a single adult. By expanding Missouri's Medicaid program, an individual who makes up to $18,000 per year would be eligible. Expanding the Medicaid program would also bring our federal tax dollars back home and save state funding, keeping rural hospitals open and creating jobs. The Missouri Foundation for Health says that more than 25 states have already expanded Medicaid, but Missouri hasn't, so hundreds of thousands of people are left without any health insurance options." Unquote. In a time of extreme need, like during a pandemic, it is clear that all of us benefit when everyone can get health care. Not only do we need care for those stricken with illness, everyone should be able to get testing if they suspect they've been exposed. As facilities like schools reopen, we will want care and testing to be available to low-income children. Expanding Medicaid will mean that 300,000 of our low-income neighbors, most of whom are working, will get health care and will cover a huge coverage gap. We will save and create 24,000 jobs statewide. We will protect our hospitals from devastating budget cuts, which will result in loss of jobs and services for everyone. In just the past six months, hospitals have either cut or kept vacant more than 3,000 jobs statewide. Expanding Medicaid will bring back these jobs and create more. Another advantage to expanding Medicaid is that people with mental illnesses will be able to get care. Learn more about Medicaid on the website of the Missouri Foundation for Health. And I should mention that there is a vote to expand Medicaid on August 4th, 2020. The governor has ruled that we can vote by mail. You just get a hold of your county clerk and ask for a ballot. The last day to request a ballot is July 22nd. To learn more, check out the numerous websites on the subject of Medicaid expansion in Missouri. And that's it for Agriculture in the News. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Margo. Appreciate you watching the importance of health care for people living in rural communities here in central Missouri. Coming up next is an interview that was conducted on Saturday, July 11th, 2020 at 9 a.m. with Dr. Robert Lawrence. Hope you enjoy.
and I have on the phone with me Robert Lawrence. And Robert is from Maine, but he has a history of professionally moving around and he uh, has been a physician who trained at the Mass General Hospital uh, doing clinical practice with teaching and research for 25 years before joining the faculty at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and that was in 1995 and he went on there to found the Center for a Livable Future in 1996 and served as the doctor or the director there until his retirement in 2016. The Center for Sustainable, or I'm sorry, the Center for a Livable Future focuses on the impact of industrialized food, animal production, on public health, and the environment. Well, thank you, Robert, for taking time out of your day to join us and share with us your knowledge and wisdom in regards to public health and industrialized food animal production. Thank you and welcome. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so you have a history of working with the impact of industrialized food animal production. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. Uh, uh, I actually... Uh, fulfilled my uh, draft obligation by uh, spending three years at the CDC early in my career where I was first exposed to uh, epidemiology, field epidemiology, and learning how to connect the dots and uh, link exposure and risk factors to uh, the health of the general population and the specific impact on individuals. Um, and during my clinical career, most of my uh, patients were uh, older individuals whose uh, physical problems were largely related to chronic uh, risk factors that uh, were influenced by uh, lifestyle, by educational level, by economic security, and all the things that are now being talked a lot about as social determinants of health in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So too much smoking, uh, eating the wrong food, lack of exercise, failure to wear seatbelts, uh, using alcohol or other uh, illicit drugs. And uh, I got more and more interested in the challenge of prevention. And so I began working with um, the whole idea of what preventive services could individual clinicians like myself deliver in the office setting or in the hospital setting to help lower risk factors and prolong uh, healthier uh productive lives for Americans. And that attracted the attention of people uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services when the first U.S. Preventive Services Task Force was established back in 1985, and I was invited to serve as chair of that group. And uh, we spent four years uh, reviewing uh, peer-reviewed scientific literature, 
we went through over 5,000 uh, published articles on risk factors ranging from the things I've already mentioned to uh, uh, other uh, risks like uh, workplace exposures and um, exposure to ionizing radiation, a variety of uh, things leading up to production of a report that covered um, uh, about 60 important clinical uh, conditions ranging from heart disease, breast cancer, hypertension, uh, pulmonary disease, and so forth, uh, related to about 160 different clinical preventive services that were being used to try to lower risk. And we did a very critical analysis of which of those interventions had been demonstrated by a careful uh, scientific study to be useful versus those that were really either uh, a waste of time or perhaps even actually harmful. And we came up with a short list of uh, recommendations that ultimately were included in the package of preventive services that the Affordable Care Act mandated uh, be provided at no additional cost to all uh, people insured in the United States. And that led to expansion of interest on my part to uh, some of the more broad uh, societal uh, interests. And uh, if you look at the individual patient eating a high meat, high-fat diet leading to premature cardiovascular disease, then what if you step back and say, well, what about the whole, whole population of the United States uh, and the production of that high-meat diet? Does it have other consequences? And that's what led me to um, get involved with the establishment of the Center for a Livable Future, where we looked initially exclusively at the impact of uh, CAFOs or factory farms on uh, the health of the American public and quickly expanded to realize that some of that impact is mediated uh, indirectly through the harmful impact on the environment uh, as well as the production of uh, the large quantities of animal products that were typical of uh, the average American diet. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Um, that last thing you said, I want to see if I understood it correctly. The negative consequences to the environment compound the already acting consequences to, the, to human health. Yes. So, uh, you know, most... Uh, most clinicians uh, uh, learn very little about human nutrition in medical school, and uh, sadly, uh, most uh, clinicians throw up their hands, and if somebody is struggling to improve their diet, they get a referral to a nutritionist, which is fine if you have adequate numbers of nutritionists. But what we never learned was, uh, are there other harms to human health that are based on the way in which our food is being produced. And with the industrialization of agriculture, uh, 
the introduction of uh, high volume uh, application of fertilizers to uh, produce the field corn and the soybeans that make up the diet of the beef cattle and the dairy cattle and the swine and the poultry that uh, are produced in such uh, huge numbers in the United States. Well, it wasn't until uh, people began looking at the runoff of excess nitrogen and phosphorus into the waterways of the United States, the eutrophication, as it's called, where uh, that excess phosphorus and nitrogen allows algal blooms to occur, such as uh, closed down water supplies for uh, cities along Lake Erie two summers ago, uh, producing cyanobacter, uh, blue-green algae, which is actually toxic to human beings. And all of that is really uh, the picture that has emerged in the last 20 years or so as the intensification of our uh, industrial food animal production system has grown. And as people, uh, both from public health and from the environmental sciences, have focused more and more on the consequences of the way in which we're uh, producing our food today. Thank you. Um, so I'm curious about what you found when looking at the health impacts around CAFOs and, and all of the industrial agriculture that supports it. So you know, you've already hit on eutrophication with with growing grain and spraying chemicals over those crops. Um, what are other health hazards related to uh, living close to these these areas? And and what is the size of that zone where health hazard increases, where your risk for illness increases? Well, let me uh, just quickly. Uh kind of bookmark that last part of your question. Uh, there have been studies now that have shown that uh, if you live within two miles of a poultry house or swine facility with their enormous exhaust fans that suck in fresh air and blow out the uh, uh, air from within the barn, um, if you live within two miles, you are exposed to uh, bacteria that are emanating in the exhaust air from those barns. And uh, so that's sort of, if you think about a, a two-mile radius around every concentrated animal uh, feeding operation or every CAFO, and you look at where the CAFOs are uh, placed around the United States, uh, you can see that there's a vast, vast amount of the American population living in rural America and, and uh, semi-urban America even uh, that will be exposed uh, to bacteria. Now, getting back to the heart of the question, um, think about the problems associated with uh, industrial food animal production and their misuse of antibiotics. It was discovered uh, 
back in the 40s after penicillin was introduced during World War II that uh, small amounts of antibiotics given to animals uh, increased their rate of growth. So the discovery that you could accelerate growth by using low-dose antibiotics uh, seemed a wonderful application of this new technology. And uh, if uh, the average broiler uh, gets to market in 46 days or 47 days, and you can reduce that to 43 or 44 days, it doesn't sound like a lot of, but if you're raising 100,000 broilers in your large uh, uh, barns, uh, that translates into significant uh, production savings. So it didn't take long, however, to begin to observe that you create a perfect storm by crowding animals together in unsanitary, unsanitary uh, facilities, uh, and you then give them low-dose antibiotics in their feed or in the water, and through spontaneous mutations in the bacteria, there will be an occasional bug that uh, suddenly has a gene that it allows the bacteria to survive in the presence of the low-dose antibiotic. And pretty soon that strain of bacteria takes over as the susceptible bacteria uh, are killed off by the low-dose antibiotics. You end up then with uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria. Uh, we have severely compromised our ability to preserve antibiotics for human medicine uh, because of the abuse of antibiotics in the industrial food animal production area big impact in terms of the emergence of antibiotic resistance worldwide has been through their uh, widespread uh, misuse as growth promoters and disease prevention because of compensating for the unhealthy uh, conditions in which these animals were packed together. This began to first be documented about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but um, several of our uh, faculty and research uh, fellows at the Center for a Liberal Future, uh, focusing on the poultry industry on the Delmarva Peninsula, uh, did some of the most careful documentation, not just of the emergence of uh, resistant uh, bacteria like Salmonella, Campylobacter, uh, enterococci, but also the fact that uh, in one study, the poultry workers themselves who handled the birds had the highest carriage rate, meaning that they, if you swab their nares uh, uh, and culture, uh, they would have asymptomatic carrier state for antibiotic-resistant bacteria which when their immune system was then compromised by stress or uh, other, uh, even a viral infection, might create the situation where that uh, asymptomatic carrier state would become a active clinical infection with a, a bug that was difficult to treat because it was resistant to the commonly used antibiotics. They then looked at the prevalence 
benefits of carriage state for those antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the family members of the poultry workers. And it was not quite as high, but it was definitely elevated. And then they looked in the community living immediately around the CAFOs, and it was, again, lower than the family members, but still higher than you would expect. And then they had uh, sampling from populations that lived more than a couple of miles away from the nearest uh, CAFO, and that was sort of the community norm, and it was down around 2 or 3%, where some of the other percentiles were up in the 50 to 60%. So that kind of... Uh, uh, can I get... Yeah, go ahead. Can I just uh, feel out your thought that you just shared right there? The If you're living... If you're working in a CAFO, you're 50% more likely to to become a carrier for these? Oh, or even higher. Or even higher. The, that kind of work has been replicated in North Carolina hog facilities uh, by uh, one of my colleagues at Hopkins, Chris Heaney, who's found nasal carriage of uh, MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which is uh, a major problem in uh, communities all across the country. And he's found very high uh, rates of MRSA uh, in the uh, nasal passages of uh, swine workers in industrial uh, food animal production facilities. Um, so we know that that uh, is a significant problem. And then, uh, as I said, there is this step down, but even just living in the community uh, where animals are being uh, uh, produced in confinement can lead to higher risk. I hope you're enjoying the uh, words of Dr. Robert Lawrence, the retired director for the Center for a Livable Future. I looked him up on Google, and and uh, lots of lots of interesting information that they're sharing on their webpage. I encourage everybody to to go check it out. We're going to take a little musical break. Up next, we're going to listen to a song called Peacock Rag, performed by Howard Marshall and Vivian Williams on fiddle and Musa Wolf on piano. I'm really appreciating the piano with the fiddle.
lead to higher risk. There was another interesting study in Pennsylvania, speaking of MRSA, where um, the Geisinger uh, Health System, which uh, covers a large area of Pennsylvania between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, um, they have, uh, I don't know, 20 or so outpatient facilities and uh, uh, three or four hospitals. And they were one of the first health systems in the United States to uh, rely on uh, a digital medical record. And so they began um, keeping data going back uh, now 15 or 16 years at least. Um, and they would code for different uh, problems, the so-called ICDA code, which is used uh, by insurer, insurance companies and by Medicare and Medicaid to reimburse hospitals and doctors for their services. And the ICDA code included uh, MRSA skin infection. Um, so another one of my colleagues at Hopkins uh, and one of our uh, CLF uh, learner uh, fellows uh, did a study using uh, uh, geomapping of Pennsylvania and they took every person who had been treated by the Geisinger system with a diagnosis of MRSA and they plotted out where that person lived in relationship to spray fields for industrial food animal production facilities. Now the spray fields, I don't know whether you have them in Missouri, but they're a major, major issue in many parts of the country because in the raising of uh, especially swine, um, which produce uh, many times more waste per body weight than humans do, uh, instead of that waste being sent to a wastewater treatment plant uh, and <clears throat> processed and decontaminated, uh, the waste is usually uh, put into large open cesspits. Uh, euphemistically called lagoons in the industry. Those cesspits, uh, by state regulation, have to have a certain amount of uh, uh, safety depth before they breach. And that, those rules came into effect after some disastrous flooding of uh, open cesspits in North Carolina after Hurricane Floyd in 1999 when over 35 of these large open cesspits were breached by the heavy rain and uh, contaminated vast areas of the eastern part of North Carolina. Yeah, I've, so I've read that story, and, and we have lagoons here, and we have breaches all the time. Yeah. So then you, you know that the lagoons need to be pumped down when they get too full, and the pumped-down uh, mixture of... Uh, uh, feces and urine is spread on fields for fertilizer. Uh, but usually the fields are, uh, their controls are supposed to be in place so that you don't spray uh, during the winter months when the soil is uh, frozen, won't absorb the nutrients. Not supposed to spray when it's raining and things like that, but um, that those uh, 
rules and regulations are, I'm afraid, honored more in the breach than the observance in many parts of the country. At any rate, uh, the spray fields in Pennsylvania turned out to be a significant risk factor for people who otherwise had absolutely no connection to the industrial production of uh, animals. So in other words, if you uh, happen to live in exurbia uh, and you had a house that you built out in the country and um, half mile away was a big cornfield, uh, field corn, that was being periodically uh, sprayed with uh, hog waste <clears throat> to produce the field corn for the next crop of hogs. Um, and you drove past that on your way to uh, work in, uh, as an accountant in a small town or as a school teacher or whatever. Uh, you were more likely to end up in the Geisinger system with a diagnosis of MRSA skin infection than if you lived uh, more than five miles away from the nearest spray field. So those are the kinds of uh, studies that have steadily accumulated to show that the environment is being changed by industrialization of animal production. It's being changed in ways that have consequences for the ecosystem itself with the eutrophication problems and so forth, contamination of soil, water, and air. But more importantly, from a human health perspective, it's being changed in ways that create significant risk factors for exposure to these uh, very difficult antibiotic-resistant bacteria uh, that create, uh, estimated by the CDC, that we had um, uh, over 3 million hospitalizations in uh, 2018 due to antibiotic-resistant bacteria with uh, uh, a significant number of deaths, about 35,000, 40,000 deaths. So uh, that's one of the many uh, problems associated with human health and CAFOs. Second one is respiratory disease. Uh, getting back to these big exhaust fans, if you live uh, downwind of one of these exhaust fans, uh, uh, you're exposed to bacteria. You're exposed to fragments of bacteria, which... Uh, uh, the wall of some of the intestinal bacteria uh, are consist of material that's now called uh, endotoxin. And endotoxin in and of itself, without a living bacteria, but just the fragment of the bacterial wall, uh, can uh, cause significant injury to the body if uh, exposed to it in a sufficient amount. Um, is there a way somebody could get tested or possibly test, you know, the walls or surfaces of their home to see if that bacteria is present? Uh, usually the testing is air sampling downwind rather than um, on the walls. But uh, since you raised the question of testing in the house, there was a study done in the Yakima Valley in the state of Washington where there were uh, three or four mega dairies, meaning, uh, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 uh, cows. Uh, in the Yakima Valley, the uh, 
the cow uh, manure was uh, stored in very large uh, uh, piles. And um, the people living there, about 100 families living uh, within close enough proximity to these um, dairies that they were concerned about health problems ranging from they seem to have more asthma, they seem to have uh, more uh, other respiratory uh, diseases. And so uh, they got involved through a group called the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, SRAP, um, with one of the local orchardists who was a member of uh, SRAP. And she uh, said, she had noticed since these dairies moved into the valley that uh, the leaves on her cherry trees and the cherries themselves uh, were starting to be coated with the very uh, thin dusting of uh, dried cow manure. And uh, she said it made it difficult for her to process her crops. They had to be washed more carefully, et cetera. And uh, she just sort of raised the alarm with a, a group of environmental lawyers who began to investigate. What they found, uh, and actually EPA at that time was still doing its job uh, investigating uh, potential environmental uh, problems, and the EPA discovered that the groundwater contained uh, excess amounts of nitrate and the nitrate was from these large piles of uh, cow manure that were uh, gradually uh, oxidizing and uh, material from the piles uh, seeping down into the groundwater. So these hundred or so families were relying on shallow wells in the aquifer that was underneath that part of the Yakima Valley. And uh, some of them were having the... EPA standard is uh, ten, no more than 10 parts per million of nitrate in drinking water. Otherwise, the uh, water is unsafe. And some of them had 60, 70, 80 parts per million of nitrate. And we now know that nitrate at that level, in addition to causing the blue baby syndrome, actually appears to be a risk factor for increased rates of uh, diabetes and for some other uh, chronic illnesses. So that raised the alarm, and uh, they called for assistance. Uh, Center for a Livable Future uh, sent a team out to examine air quality, water quality, and also to look for traces of uh, uh, bacteria and animal danders and other things that could explain the high rates of asthma. So they went into the homes and collected dust samples. Um, I don't know whether, I don't think they swabbed the walls or anything, but they, they collected dust samples uh, in the corners of the rooms and things like that, windowsills. And lo and behold, uh, there were, there was evidence of these uh, fragments of dead bacteria that uh, actually had endotoxin. There were uh, viable bacteria uh, that could still uh, infect if you uh, ingested them directly. 
and there were evidence of uh, um, bits and pieces of uh, organic material from the from the cow uh, manure, but also uh, um, evidence of uh, animal danders and you know, fragments of hair and things like that that uh, are known antigens to cause uh, asthma in susceptible individuals. What was significant about the Yakima Valley case was that uh, when the environmental lawyers uh, took the evidence that had been procured both by EPA and by the Center for Livable Future and uh, sued the uh, large dairies to uh, reduce the risk to the population to uh, mediate uh, remediate the uh, water supply, uh, which the dairies ended up simply uh, delivering bottled water, which is not a solution, and they're still ha haggling over that. But the most important finding was that when the uh, federal judge hearing the case found for the plaintiffs, and uh, uh, the judge also declared that animal waste in such concentrations was, in fact, a violation of the RICRA law passed many years ago, the Resource and Recovery Act, which uh, defined hazardous substances that had to be controlled to protect the health of the public. And industrial agriculture had for years, ever since the RICRA was being proposed in Congress, lobbied not to have animal waste considered under RICRA because it was a so-called natural substance. Well, what's a natural substance and which is a wonderful natural fertilizer when it's distributed in the pasture by the animals themselves and in moderation uh, becomes a hazardous substance when it's concentrated in these open cesspits for swine and these huge manure piles for dairy and beef cattle and in litter piles for the poultry industry. Now, we're still waiting for a uh, second case to establish precedent in the terms of the law, a single case, a single finding by a single federal judge um, doesn't have the uh, power to influence legislation and to override some of the kind of state right-to-farm laws that uh, you and I were chatting about with regard to Missouri. But it is a, a step in the right direction to demonstrate that when you uh, take a natural thing and treat it in an unnatural way, you create a uh, hazard to the environment and to human health. Yeah, thank you for sharing the story about Yakima Valley. Um, I've read a pretty good narrative of that story, and, you know, there's there's other stories that are being written about, but there's so many that are not being yeah. investigated and, and shared. Um, I'm wondering if you can, you mentioned MRSAs. I wonder if you can speak about specific um, diseases and 
and their vectors and their related illnesses. Um, you, you've touched on kind of broadly speaking about them, but, and, and I guess you did talk on some specifics about the endobacteria. And it, are there others that we should be aware of while we still have some sensitivity probably uh, before we just get inundated as these grow in our area? Yes, uh, well, I I think um, the most important ones, in addition to uh, uh, MRSA and then uh, Campylobacter species, which uh, cause gastrointestinal disease and are most associated with poultry, uh, but also antibiotic-resistant uh, Salmonella, uh, E. coli, and uh, Enterococcus uh, are all now implicated in uh, human infections that are derived from uh, uh, contaminated uh, meat products and so forth. Um, a study in Flagstaff, Arizona, where the population is, I uh, can't remember exactly, about 100,000 or so, but it's uh, surrounded by, you know, large areas of uh, uh, pretty empty, uh, sparsely populated uh, arid land. So people living in Flagstaff um, do most of their, almost all of their shopping and all of their uh, medical uh, uh, services right there. So this investigator, uh, uh, Lance Price, now at uh, uh, George Washington University in, in D.C., he collected uh, samples of uh, poultry products from the five or six uh, large uh, grocery stores uh, in the city. And uh, on a monthly basis for over a year, he collected uh, chicken breasts and uh, uh, ground uh, turkeys, meat, and I all focusing on poultry products. And at the same time, for a year or so, he uh, collected uh, data from the hospitals and from outpatient uh, clinical laboratories where they were doing uh, urine cultures for uh, people suffering from urinary tract infections. And he ended up finding that the same, and then he did whole genome analysis of the E. coli isolated from the contaminated poultry and whole genome analysis of the uh, E. coli uh, culture in the urine of uh, patients with uh, urinary tract infections. And the whole genome analysis is what it really sounds like. It's taking uh, the DNA of the bacteria and sequencing the entire uh, DNA code for that bacteria. And he found exact replication. The bacteria that were on the contaminated poultry were the same exact bacteria that were causing 
urinary tract infection. And uh, it was a, a sort of a unique and groundbreaking study because it really uh, showed for the first time the uh, uh, direct correlation between uh, buying poultry that had been raised in large CAFOs that uh, had birds that were contaminated with antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria, and uh, you know every every homemaker and every chef in the United States has been aware for years that you uh, if you prepare the raw uh, chicken breasts or whatever for uh, uh, cooking, you don't then uh, use the same cutting board to uh, prepare your salad that's not going to get cooked. And so most of these bacteria are destroyed by heat, and uh, we we can continue to enjoy well-prepared and well-cooked uh, chicken. But if you err on the side of uh, not being really careful in food preparation or or you just a little undercook the turkey sausage that uh, is contaminated, then um, you have the higher risk of uh, acquiring an infection that will ultimately uh, be difficult to treat because of the bacterial resistance. So that's that's another uh, case of where we have to uh, be very mindful of the way in which we are exposed. then there's the exposure that comes through uh, other uh, toxins. Uh, if you uh, live near a large uh, poultry production facility, um, there's a, an amount of ammonia and hydrogen sulfide released into the air. Uh, the exhaust fans are necessary because if you did not circulate the air within a poultry house that has uh, 30, 40, 50,000 uh, broilers being uh, uh, raised, uh, they themselves would begin to suffer the consequences of high uh, ammonia levels. Unfortunately, we're out of time for this episode. Robert continues sharing stories, and you can listen on our podcast. A neighborhood of farmers in northern Missouri successfully sued for mental health damages against a swine facility. He shares a study correlating respiratory illness with proximity to an industrial swine facility. Robert provides several steps we can take to protect ourselves when these industrial ag systems are present in the neighborhood. He calls on increased restriction for the operation of the CAFO. The World Health Organization has recently called for a moratorium on new CAFO expansion worldwide. He finishes by discussing a coalition of farmers in Iowa that have given and grown and learned about the issue through experience. The rest of the interview is available on our podcast website. You can find it by going to kopn.org. Or you can just type in farmandfiddle.transistor.fm. 
There's no space between farm and fiddle. The stories Robert has shared open the window into a hidden world that isn't much discussed. Rather, it seems accepted in these times. They are so accepted that I wonder how many of us have a blind eye towards the risk they pose. Coronavirus has helped us become more aware of disease transmission as a community. When visiting a creek, I always wonder if there's a CAFO upstream and have had to become more selective. I wonder why we are inviting such great risk into our communities. For the chore of the week, I'd like to suggest everyone have a discussion about the food system with the person you share food with, or even better, the person you prepare food with. Go online and discover how close you live and work to a CAFO. Help the elders and others in your circle discover too. The more aware we become of the risk, the better choices we can make. As Margot mentioned in today's Agriculture in the News, basic health care in rural Missouri has been a low priority for state lawmakers. Through awareness, we can develop resiliency. Hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Robert Lawrence share his experiences and findings. And now we conclude this episode of Farm and Fiddle here on 89.5 FM, KOK in Columbia. Thank you and have a great night.